I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. To Cordelia. Mm-hmm. I'm bombing down a trail, like, or I'm just shredding a face of immaculate powder. Oh, my God. I am... <laughs> You're getting so I am just, carried away. Ugh, it's like a moment, you know? Just <laughs> full rad. I'm getting full rad right now. And and I pull up and I pull up in this cloud of dust or, you know, I spray you with powder mm-hmm. as I pull up and I high five you and I'm smiling ear to ear. And like, what do you say to me in that moment? You know? That was so over the top. <laughs> but I would probably say you just crushed that. Or like you were shredding. Uh you killed it. Something like that. The vernacular of the of the outdoors. And it's really not just the, the outdoors, right? Um crushing it. I kinda like when you said that I had this like I, I heard um like electric guitar from the 80s behind it um yeah no 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 so obnoxious (laughs) so obnoxious are you talking about me or are you talking about electric guitar from the 1980s no no the the guitar okay cool it's a funny thing right i think i hear it all the time because i think and maybe it's because i'm a little bit maybe i'm getting old i mean that's that's true fact i think my generation does i mean i was just in moab with a bunch of my friends and I noticed that too because, um, yeah, we were out there mountain biking all day and having a super good time and doing pretty challenging stuff. And, uh, you know, I'd look back and be like, you're crushing it. You're doing, you're, you know. And it's funny for me, especially because I, I have, it's like so antagonistic to what I'm actually feeling when I'm like moving over beautiful landscape and looking at incredible red cliffs and like connecting in a very, spiritual way with the land which I I always have um and so describing something as like you're killing this or you're crushing this is like it's so opposite from the kind of expansion and love and gratitude that I'm actually feeling in that moment and that is it's really interesting yeah the calm too right I mean and the calm yeah. yeah like it's very the the violence of that language is so at odds with the peace that I'm actually feeling. And it's interesting that that's the language that we know to use in those settings, even though it is so imprecise. Yeah. It's not even imprecise. It's actually opposite from what I actually would love to be able to describe in that moment. But like, I don't, I don't even know like what, I guess what I would rather say is like, you look like you're dancing, like you're flying. I don't know. Something that's, that, elicits beauty and grace and but that's not 
words we really use in the outdoor recreational yeah. culture. I just think it's fascinating because I, I think that it is true. It's it's like, I, I think on a level, it's sort of hard to, you know, I'm feeling the calming effect of endorphins <laughs> isn't quite being like, dude, you nailed it, right? Like, yeah, there's just, it, it's, I think it's probably also just what the, the, the sort of moment brings out in us. But it is a, it's a interesting topic is that we, we tend to be pretty goal oriented. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think when you step back, and you say to yourselves, like, what is the purpose of this? Is it actually a true summit or is it an experience? Is it feeling a part of something bigger than yourself? Is it, mm-hmm. what is it? And it's complicated and it's different for each of us. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's a necessarily a right way or a wrong way to do this. But like in corporate America, they would put posters of people standing on the top of sum- summits and put the word success underneath it. And so mm-hmm. in that vision of it is oftentimes that sort of like created those words of conquer. Um, you know, certainly we use the word strive a lot, right? There's this idea mm-hmm. of suffering as you move through it, even though you're doing something you totally want to do and you're electively doing that. You know, w- w- there is that side of it. And mm-hmm. but I think that there's so much room to explore what it actually means to succeed outdoors. And that leads us to our story today. It's a good one. About a group... Yeah, I'm psyched for this. <laughs> yeah, it's super great. Uh, about a group of friends who have one foot in that more traditional outdoor recreation culture and another foot in a very different culture and history of relating to mountains and sort of figuring out where those two, two worlds contradict and where those two worlds come together. I'm Fitzcall. I'm Cordelia Zars. And I'm going to play a little electric guitar. Oh my God. <laughs> You're listening Stop. to the Dirtbag Diaries. That was just for you. <laughs> <laughs> Len Nessifer spent most of his childhood in Kansas, a state not known for its access to adventure. But Len's parents wanted to make sure he grew up with a relationship to the outdoors. And so, you know, we would go to Clinton Lake State Park and all these, like, various areas that had some level of wildness to them. As he grew older, Len started spending more time with his grandparents on the Navajo Nation in Arizona, and eventually he moved there when he was 13. His grandfather, who was a traditional healer, made sure that Len spent a lot of time outside. But on the Navajo Nation, spending time outside didn't mean hiking, climbing, or skiing. That sort of outdoor rec way of engaging with the outdoors was something that was pretty foreign to my family because, you know, there's an element of class and wealth that plays into that. It was just unrelatable and to them because that's not what made sense. Like, you go outside to, like, provide for yourself that's chopping wood that's you know moving the sheep that's moving the cows that's collecting herbs and so like playing was kind of the things that kids did while they were herding sheep there's a long history of 
non-native folks, mainly white men coming on the res and putting first ascents on some of our sacred summits, like Shiprock was where my family's from. And, you know, kind of doing these clandestine things on the res. And um, eventually people started getting hurt on Shiprock. You know, there was a, some folks that died because they fell. And that in Navajo worldview is like contaminates the sacredness of that site. Clearly, I mean, it's like someone dying in the Vatican, you know, that's like not cool. <laughs> um, and so there was a lot of frustration that they expressed about recreation and like climbing and you know, that you shouldn't do that because it's disrespectful. When Len started high school, a debate broke out between local tribes and the Snowball Ski Resort outside Flagstaff. The ski resort planned to make snow from sewage water on one of the Navajo's sacred mountains, Doko Oslid. It's, you know, basically spraying lightly treated sewage on a sacred mountain for a sport that's like completely unrelatable for mainly non-native folks to go enjoy was clearly like not a value proposition that a lot of folks were into. And for myself early on, you know, I saw that happening. It's like, I didn't understand skiing or why people did it. And, but I just saw that, you know, there was, you know, sort of this continuation and through line of native people sort of being shut out of this process. And, you know, I just kind of was like, I'm never going to do this. I'm fine with it. Like I have no relation to it. Years later, Len moved back to Kansas for college. He dabbled in mountain biking to get outside. He loved the little rush of adrenaline and got into cross-country racing. When he came home for summers, he started exploring his own backyard on the Navajo Nation. Wow, there's a lot here. There's a lot of fun things to do. And that was mainly through biking. After college, he moved to Pennsylvania for grad school and found a climbing gym he loved. It didn't become something that defined him, but just a way to stay in shape during the winter months. After he graduated, he moved to Golden, Colorado, to work for the Department of Energy. I just started, you know, running a lot more, riding my bike, and then, you know, the winter came around. It's like, you know, I don't want my sort of outdoor stuff to end. And I was like snowshoeing. I was like, this is lame. This is like too much work for like, it was like too much. It was so much work for like, basically like not a lot of reward. And I was like, there's gotta be a better, better way to do this. No, 0% adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I was like, you know what? I like, I, you know, I know the skiing thing is something that I just can't relate to, but I learned about backcountry skiing and touring setups. And I was like, wow, that's like snowshoeing and like, the speed I would get on a bike, I was like, I could see how that could be fun. You know, that first winter I was in Colorado, I was like, I'm gonna teach myself how to ski. Like, I'm just gonna go there, I'm gonna do it. And I remember I bought these like, I don't know, 195 centimeter skis and like, they were like race skis from the nineties and they were 50 bucks. And I was like, boots and skis, like right on. <laughs> and so I bought a four pack of passes to go to Loveland ski area. And I was like hanging out in the bunny hill for all four of those days, like with the kids, you know, and I'm like the biggest kid out there. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it's just like, I'm like over, I'm like six two. So it's like, I'm just this giant beast with all these kids and like, I'm having a hard time. <laughs> Before I go in the ski area, I would watch like YouTube videos and like practice in my living room. And like, it was like, okay, it's like, and eventually like by the fourth time I was like on blue runs and stuff. And it made sense. The speed made sense, like reacting and like learning how to turn with that was like something that felt natural from mountain biking 
but you know, I get on these ski areas, get to the top of the lift. And I would always look like kind of at the mountains that were not lift served. And it's like, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be with all these people. Len caught the bug. He loved hooting and hollering and dropping through fresh pow. By his second season, he could ski all the runs in the resort. But even as he joined thousands of other stoked front rangers on the Colorado slopes, he didn't always feel like he fit in. What I was seeing in the front range is there's a lot of transplants and folks that are coming from like the Midwest or wherever. And just like, you know, the dominant and predominant culture there is about this sort of conquering mentality and like, you know, yeah. And so anyways, that's kind of the one of the things I just didn't really I I didn't really relate to. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel comfortable. At the same time, Len wasn't telling his own family about his favorite powder days. Given his culture's disdain for the ski industry, he tried to keep those worlds apart. You know, I was thinking to myself, there has to be a different way to write this story in my head. Um, these are the mountains that I come from. This is this thing in the sport that I now love. This is how I connect with the mountains. If I don't connect these two parts to me, that's uh, not going to be sustainable. Those faraway mountains that had caught Len's gaze at the top of the lift, he started researching how he could ski up them. He read up on backcountry skiing, bought a setup, and signed up for an Avi One course. In 2018, Len met professional skier Brody Levin, and the two became fast friends. He had just come off of losing one of his largest sponsors and was in a pretty challenging space, but it also meant that he had a lot of time to do stuff. And I said, hey, would you mind showing me how to do this thing called ski mountaineering in a way that was a little bit, uh, made a bit more sense. Brody helped Len get set up in the backcountry. And then Len and one of his friends skied up Mount Quandry, a 14er near Breckenridge. That was phenomenal. It was really fun. It just felt really, I don't know, it was like kind of like fulfilled what I was looking for. Like that sort of large physical exertion kind of in a place that's like not a lot of people. You know, it was one of these things that I started hearkening back and um, thinking about my grandpa and like our four sacred mountains. And like he said, you know, like when you spend time with them, you understand why they're sacred. And that was, I remember in Quandary Peak, just like being on top of the summit and just seeing like all these snow-capped peaks. And I was like, wow, this makes sense now. Like, like what my grandpa was saying makes sense. I get it now. Looking at all the snow, I was like, wow, all this water is going to eventually end up in the Colorado River. And that river is like such a lifeblood to, you know, my reservation and all these communities. And it just kind of like was connecting all these threads Up there on the peak, that's when a light bulb flicked on in Len's brain. Navajo culture centers around four sacred peaks in the southwest. In the winter months, they are very, very snowy. Skiing and native cultures had always felt worlds apart, in direct conflict with each other. But Len started wondering, what if it didn't have to be that way? What if he set out to explore the four sacred Navajo mountains, the roots of his people's history, on skis. I need to go do this. I need to go visit these places on these skis and like try to make sense of all of this history, like with Snowball and all of that and just with who I am. In the winter of 2017, Len quit his job at the Department of Energy. He founded his own company called Natives Outdoors to empower indigenous storytelling and adventure in the outdoors. 
Then he set his sights on preparing to ski the four sacred peaks. So in the Navajo worldview, the four sacred mountains represent like kind of the boundaries of our homeland. And they're like historically where we've defined where we live is like everywhere within the four sacred mountains is our home. Those sacred mountain ranges border the four corners area of the southwest, where the edges of Utah, Colorado, Arizona and New Mexico converge. The easternmost mountain, Cisnagene, lies within the Sangre de Cristo range in Colorado. Colonizers renamed this mountain Mount Blanca. The southern mountain, Tzodzith, stands at the highest point in the San Mateo mountain range in New Mexico. Its colonial name is Mount Taylor. The eastern mountain, Doco Oslid, is one of the San Francisco peaks in Arizona, and it's also called Humphreys Peak. And then the northern mountain, De Benitza, is in the San Juan range in Colorado. Its colonial name is Hesperus Mountain. The way in which we learn is so much formed by the mountains. So like when we talk about the learning process, we reference the mountains. So like the East Mountain is like the formation of this idea. You have an idea. The Southern Mountain is like planning and like creating a plan for how you want to implement. And then the Western Mountain, Doko's Lead, is like executing the plan and doing the thing. And then the Northern one is reflecting And then you start that process all over again. Those four sacred mountains tie into our creation story in that they were built by the holy people. And like we basically went through the series, a series of five worlds or five transitions, you know, to different homelands. But one of the sort of through lines through each of them is that we, the holy people basically retained dirt and other elements of these mountains. So as, as we came into each one of these worlds, these mountains would be replanted. You know, each of these mountains have different deities and different holy people that live on them. Each of these mountains have different healing properties and our ceremonial practices. And they also represent sort of the four, the like different markers of life and sort of human development. And, um, you know, and so in so many ways, the, our sort of philosophical tradition and the way we think about, you know, the relationship between humans and nature and humans and each other is, is formed by these mountains and like what they represent. It comes through every form of our sort of social organization, whether it's our legal system, our form of elected governance. I mean, you name it, it's all kind of fits within that. At the end of 2017, Len began planning his routes up and down each of the sacred mountains. After a scouting trip to Cisnagene with Brody in January, Len came back later that spring to ski it. Of all the sacred peaks, it has the most technical climbing and skiing. To get from the base to the top and then back again is a 25-mile round-trip venture. The snow rests on steep slopes and avalanches often. Skiing solo, Len gingerly navigated his way to a prominent saddle on the peak and then skied the simplest line down he could find. That's definitely the hardest one, but I, I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the most, uh, let's say I survived it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was... Not spectacular. It was rocky, whatever. But that's the one mountain I want to go back and redo. Um, Because I'm a better skier, I can ski something a little bit more interesting. (laughs) Still, despite the sketchy conditions, that first trip ignited something deeper. I really just saw how great I felt after that. How much more connected to these places. Seeing them in their most dangerous state and also their most beautiful 
And I think at the end of the day, it's this quietness that I often seek. And it's something that we, we don't get much of a taste of in our daily life. And so, you know, being in the Alpine, being around that snow that dampens all that sound, it's pretty special. And um, as I came off that first trip, I began seeing, wow, there's an opportunity to really connect ceremony and what we're doing here more deeply. And as with all great adventures, Len also realized it would be more fun with friends. Aaron, Mike, in the share, Tabahi, Nishli, Cloge, Bashachin, Tachini, Dashache, Torichini, Dashinale. This is Aaron Mike. He's a Navajo or Dine rock climbing guide and an athlete for Natives Outdoors. He's also the Native Lands Regional Coordinator for the Access Fund. He joined Len on the second sacred peak, Tzodzith. Connor Ryan, Amichape, Malakota, Upapa Oshpaye, I Ikche Wichasha Mielo, Itan Heska. I'm Connor Ryan. I come from the Lakota tribe, Upapa, and uh, I was born and raised in Colorado, and uh, I'm a professional skier and ambassador for Natives Outdoors. Connor joined Len and Aaron to ski up the third secret peak, Doko Oslid. Both Connor and Aaron shared Len's struggle to reconcile their outdoor pursuits that brought them joy with the cultures that they came from. So together, they were all interested in finding a path towards bridging outdoor recreation and indigenous cultures in the United States. For their Doko Oslid attempt, they invited along two other professional and non-native skiers, Forrest Shearer and Greg Balkin, and the five of them began preparing for their trip. It began not with a bleary-eyed alpine start, but with a blessing ceremony from a Navajo medicine man. Len, Connor, and Aaron kick off their journey after the break. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Support comes from Kuat Racks, the Piston SR is a single rail bike rack that easily mounts on most roof racks, overlanding utility racks, and truck bed rack systems. The dual ratcheting piston arm grabs your tires and makes no contact with the bike frame. So that's better for your bike, right? Plus the rack has an all metal construction, genuine Kashima coat, and integrated cable locks. That translates to being super burly. Kuat has taken their Piston Pro X and elevated it. Find more details at kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this rack. 
In early March 2019, Len, Connor, Aaron, Forrest, and Greg set out to begin their journey up Doko Oslid. Here's Aaron. I feel like I was abducted when uh, <laughs> just out of the blue. Uh, I didn't have really much warning uh, of what the plans were, or I had no idea we were going to go drive to Gallup, like through Hopi Reservation or anything. I essentially just got in the Sprinter van and we just took off. This is Connor. We started that journey off by taking some time to get acquainted with the land on the Navajo Nation and get the blessing of a medicine man to do the you know, quest for the summit of Doko's lead. The crew drove through the Hopi Reservation, which lies within the Navajo Nation. After stopping to support some local shops, they drove on to Gallup, a town just outside of the reservation. A good family friend of Lenz, Anderson, had offered to give the team a blessing for their trip. You'll hear him singing in the next section. Here's Len again. So the Navajo traditional stru- home or structure is called the Hogan. That's where you generally do that. It's an eight-sided structure with the door facing the east. There is a fireplace in the middle. During a ceremony, you have to walk clockwise around the fire. Otherwise, you basically, if someone goes the opposite direction, you actually have to restart the ceremony. You know, the medicine man, Anderson, the general flows, he sings the song. They have a song where you're calling out to the mountain, and then the second song is where the mountain's answering back. So he sings these songs, and um, we're smoking mountain tobacco. And it's pretty strong stuff. Like, it can make you sick, um, especially for folks that have never had it before. I generally take it pretty easy. But we're, you know, passing this pipe around, obviously, pre-COVID times. And, uh, yeah, so we're smoking this tobacco and blessing our stuff, blowing the smoke on it. Anderson's singing. Um, You know, it's pretty warm in there because the fire's raging and there's all of us in there. And we have all our ski gear and all our avalanche safety and we're blessing that stuff. And and, uh, so we get to the end of the first pipe and I'm just kind of like, oh, that's good. I'm done. Forrest, not knowing, said, hey, uh, there's a tobacco done. And Anderson said, no, 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 you can refill it, refill it. And uh, (laughs) I just remember being like, oh, no. Um, We smoked the second pipe and I just saw Forrest's face and Aaron and everyone else's face just kind of, you know, just get really droopy eyed. (laughs) When the ceremony finished, Anderson gave them one last piece of advice. You know, he told us, you know, as, as you're going and doing these mountain things, you need to you need to introduce yourself to these places. They need to know who you are, why you're there. The following morning, Len, Connor, Aaron, Forrest, and Greg strapped on their skis and began the long skin up the mountain. Len had recorded Anderson's songs on his phone during the ceremony. And I pulled out my phone and began trying to sing this song, these songs. And that was kind of an interesting point because I didn't know how to sing the songs. I was kind of doing a very poor job at doing karaoke. And, you know, and I got to share that with these guys. And as we went up, we, we, we gave some corn pollen and made our ask of the mountain before we headed up the slopes. As they'd driven through the Navajo Nation, Doko Oslid had glowed in the distance a prominent landmark on the desert horizon. 
Now the peak of the mountain disappeared in shrouds of clouds and mist. Here's Connor. And so the mountain was enveloped in, in mist and snow and going up as we were in the trees and going up like until we reached treeline, it was kind of like this moment of just constantly assessing the snowpack, but it seemed to have like a different quality to it. You know, like I- I'm used to assessing the snowpack as, as I go as a backcountry skier, but having that added spiritual element of having asked for permission the day before, there was something different about assessing the snow. It, it felt more like asking a being or a relative than just saying like, here's the layers, you know, this is snow, this is crust, this is facets. Like it was more than that. And as we moved forward, you know, we more and more got set on the feeling of like, well, from that aspect, like everything feels like a go. But as we got up out of tree line and we kind of started deferring to the root finding skills of Forrest Shear, who's, you know, climbed mountains all over the place and has quite a knack for it. We realized that the, the way up was going to be to like boot this ridge line for like a long time, <laughs> like a few thousand feet of booting this ridge line. And because we were going for the summit there at Doko Sleet, the winds that were ripping across us were unbelievable, kind of unlike anything I've ever experienced. And there was literally like rime ice forming on our backpacks, on our jacket sleeves, on our hoods, on our skis, like all of it as we went up. I don't usually feel grounded when I'm adventuring in the wind. There's just something about it for me that's like, it's hard to feel as present when you're like trying to dismiss that suffering that usually comes from the wind. But this day it was different. And there was something about having asked for permission, having sung the songs, having been in ceremony and in the Hogan the day before that like, it was kind of like the wind was passing over us more like smoke does in the ceremony in that it, it was really kept bringing me inwards and bringing me to the experience as we made our way up. Aaron, unfortunately, had to turn back because of an issue he was having with his shins. But the rest of the group kept booting up through the blasting wind. After a bunch of false summits in the wind and snow, the guys finally made it to the top. Len had surprisingly, you know, because it was a 5,000 vert day, had surprisingly chose to lug his mom's enchiladas all the way up there. And he breaks out this foil-wrapped package of enchiladas, and we eat these enchiladas on the summit. And it was kind of like this surreal moment. Like, the wind's like 80 miles per hour, and we're just, like, having this serenity, despite, like, the chaos. And I think that was like one of the coolest bonding moments I'll never forget, which like, okay, like this is, this is the summit lunch here. Like what a vibe.
you know, as we prepared to like drop back in and ski down this thing, there was, you know, powder everywhere. And the skies started to clear. And it was like, it all made sense in that moment where it was like, oh, okay, like this is why it felt right. You know, we started dropping in one by one and it was just powder snow. And we descended into the trees and it was amazing. It was just like this surreal moment of some of the best skiing. That was phenomenal. And I just remember getting to this point at which the clouds cleared and I came through the trees and came up to Connor and he was looking out west to one of the sub peaks and it was just so magical. It was good just to have this moment of like release from the crazy weather of Thai, but also just like the seriousness of the moment. It was just like no longer serious. We were just having fun. That was a really cool moment of like, this is why it felt right. Like we were in communication with the mountain and it like, it knew how it was going to go even when we didn't. And that mysterious side of it turned into this answer that was like, okay, this, this makes sense. And all of a sudden we could, you know, get good shots and have good skiing and just really have this beautiful moment the whole way down of like seeing out across the desert and into all this space from this, you know, isolated, gorgeous mountain range. And it was like, okay, like this is, this is why you ask. Um, this is why you make relations with the mountain because all that stuff in nature is interconnected in some deep way that we don't get to understand as skiers and not understanding is like a big part of the beauty of it. And, and that adventure for me, like really solidified that experience of like, this is why you relate deeper to a place because it opens the door to it providing to you an experience that's so far beyond what you can create. Len, Connor, Forrest, and Greg met Aaron back down at the trailhead, both destroyed and euphoric from their adventure. After COVID shut down the country last year, Len, Connor, and Aaron were able to reunite to ski their final sacred peak in the San Juans, De Benitza, last May. They invited their friend Isaiah Branch Boyle to join their adventure. And along with skiing, Len wanted to pair their trip with delivering some COVID-19 relief supplies, like hand sanitizer and face masks, to reservations on the Navajo Nation. Len had ordered 5,000 masks, and they got held up in customs. So he told Connor, Aaron, and Isaiah that he'd meet them on the mountain. They got a head start while Len picked up the masks and drove to the trailhead. I get there and I see, you know, Isaiah and where he had parked his Jeep and he had left the hood open because there's marmots. And I, I walk up to his car and five marmots drop out of like every single wheel well. And the engine, and I look in the engine, there's two marmots in there. I don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and I just start like trying to poke them out with the, my ski pole. And, and then I was like, all right, they're gone. And then I start walking up the road to like then transition and meet these guys up to this cooler. It wasn't that much further. And then I turn around and I'm about, I don't know, half mile up the road. And I just see, it looks like this uh, carpet of brown. It was like this whole family of marmots was going straight towards his vehicle. And they were just nomming on everything. I was like, oh man, this is going to be horrific if, you know, 
they eat the engine wiring harness and you can't start the car. Like this is just, this is bad news. So I ended up just bailing on this idea about skiing. And so I spent the better part of like six hours, like halfway napping with the ski pole in my hand. And then when I would hear the rustling, I would like bat these marmots away. Meanwhile, Connor, Aaron, and Isaiah made it to the Kular. We're going up to ski in this basin and we kind of had this like, I don't know, brotherly bond of like, so what we do is we go into a basin and we find the baddest line and we ski that and we leave and like, that's how we do it. So we stroll up into this basin and, and Aaron's with us that day and Aaron's never skied a Kular, but uh, there was just this energy to being there where we just pointed at that and we're like, that's the baddest, coolest thing to ski. Like, how do you feel about it, Aaron? And I think there's like a brotherly energy that allows confidence to be spread like butter, you know? And Aaron looked at that thing and was like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Like, I don't want to hold you guys back. And so, you know, I think it was one of Aaron's first times, like putting crampons on the ski boots and that whole thing. And we, we booted up this Kular and th- there's always a bit of your drive in the mountains that has to do with your relationship to ego. And I think like, as we popped that drone up, there was definitely a piece of us that's like, we're going to be able to get some sick footage and some sick shots and really share something about this cool trip. And like, I was feeling a little extra badass about our reasons of why we were there. Cause we were, you know, able to deliver aid for, Navajo Nation at the same time and I was like yeah like we're so cool like this feels great we popped that drone up brand new drone it'd been test flown like once and we popped it up for about 30 seconds (laughs) and Isaiah's like yo man there's an eagle and we're like oh that's cool like that's real special you know (laughs) like being native guys we're like yeah we're blessed like the eagle's here this is rad (laughs) and then next thing we know Isaiah's like, oh shit, and the screen goes dark for a second on the on the monitor, you know, as he's flying the drone and he's like, the eagle got us. And we're like, what? And we look up and the drone's flying sideways and kind of falling around. And it comes right back, you know, it's trying to return because it knows something's wrong. It's got a little AI in it or whatever. And it makes it back like to the walls of the Kular and it just totally loses control and slams the rock walls of the Kular and bounces off a couple walls and boom, lands about 10 feet right in front of us. And it's just a little heap of parts. And we're like, shit, man. And in that moment, (laughs) my immediate reaction is like, "Uh uh-oh, like if the eagle did that to us, like in Lakota tradition, like the eagle is like the embodiment of the creator. And I was like, shit, man, like are we even supposed to be here right now? And we kind of look at each other and I immediately just start praying in Lakota and I'm just <laughs> going, going, um, like, um, praying, praying. And they're like, what are you saying? And I was like, yo, I'm asking the creator to have pity on us. <laughs> like, and so I was singing this, this prayer and the prayers like directly translates to like creator. I'm having a hard time. Like, take it easy on me. <laughs> and in that moment, like, you know, you still got to ski back down this after that thing happened. And I'm like, is this going to go south for us and drop in and skied it? And it all went fine. And it felt really great. You know, that was like my first time really skiing something for real after being in quarantine. And it, it went well. And it 
was an awesome experience for all of us, but we didn't have that cool thing I was hoping to share. And it didn't really take anything away. And, and in fact, like getting to watch Aaron have that experience of skiing a cooler on this sacred mountain of his, like, you know, I, I like my stoke wasn't lessened in any way by like not having something to share. And it kind of made me realize like, this is why we're doing it. Like, yes, it's really cool for us to have that experience of being able to share the, the stories of like, yeah, native people do these things. We are in these sports. We are in these spaces. But I realized like that is secondary to our actual experience of being back on the land. All safely off the mountain, the team met back in the parking lot and exchanged stories of the epics they'd all had with wildlife that day. Ultimately, it reminded them all why they were there. You know, it was having, being that place of humility. Like they had their own humility situation and I had my own where it's like, I have to do this for the good of the team. Here's Aaron. One of the biggest things that I've, I've got, like coming from this trip specifically, um, that I've carried across in all the adventures that I've done, you know, back to rock climbing and now uh, bikepacking, uh, is that idea of introducing myself to different mountains in different areas. Because, you know, every, I mean, for example, Doko's Lead, it's a sacred mountain to 13 tribes, not just the Navajo. So how to travel places as an indigenous man that is not from those places and be respectful so, I mean, I, I'd thought about that, you know, just because I've been climbing for 16 years, um, but I've never really put it into practice as much as I do now. Here's Connor. That was something to me that was like, okay, like we belong here. Like it, it, it's really been something that transforms the way that I relate to the mountains. Like it makes me much more mindful of the things, some of the things my elders taught me, which is like, you know, I had elders who always taught me like, don't speak to the land in English. English is a language uh, of commerce and commerce has been done extractively to these places in the English language for a long time. Speak to the land in your language. And having done that just like instinctively in that ego moment, it really showed me something that I was like, okay, I got to be more mindful about doing that. It just gave me a different authority to be indigenous in these sports and in these spaces, you know, having had these concrete experiences that have shown me the difference uh, of really embodying what it means to both be indigenous and be a skier. To do it this way opens the doors for us to be able to pass this down and to, you know, give indigenous people to give us back an authority and being in these spaces that, you know, we've been dispossessed from by colonization and to say like, you know, skiing isn't just a white space. Climbing isn't just a white space. Like, this is where we belong to. This is our land. And we can be here in any way that we want to be here, whether that's on skis or, you know, however it is. And so that's been a really just eye-opening experience for me because, you know, that, that didn't come naturally. Nobody teaches you how to be an indigenous skier. And these experiences and these places taught me that. 
Fortunately, the guys stuck around Dibenitsa for a few more days, so Len was able to leave the marmots behind and ski some awesome lines down the peak. For him, finishing his goal to ski the four sacred peaks has brought him full circle. I never thought I could connect these two parts of my identity. It's like, oh, I did the skiing thing and I did the Navajo thing and those worlds don't cross. Now, Len has spent the past three years aligning conditions, schedules, and partners to ski the sacred peaks. And in that process, he's not only integrated those identities inside himself, but he's also provided a space for other Indigenous athletes to do the same. Ultimately, they've all begun to build bridges between Native and outdoor cultures as a whole. The cultures that we come from give us the software in which we see the world. And I began to see these conflicts in a different light. It's like, actually, there's a lot more in common here than there is in difference. Um, you know, at least on the skiing side, you know, people love the mountains too, you know, in the ski industry. It's just, it's different, very different than native communities. And, you know, for the native communities, like, yeah, we have a very deep and long connection with these places, but, you know, the history of colonization and the dispossession of native peoples, like that happened, but, um, you know, the effects of colonization and trying to undo them is like uncooking an omelet. Um, it's just, yeah. And I guess that's a very different position than I had before. You know, I think I've just seen it's like, this is complex. Like we have to figure out how to live in a society in which we work together and like figure out common solutions. Like we do have to address this history. And I think for me, like I wasn't going to deny myself or other native folks that opportunity or that, that ability to see ourselves doing these things. This whole process has grounded me deeper and taught me more about our cultural traditions because it gave me the classroom in which to learn them. And, you know, there's a lot of chastising that happens of, um, by our, some of our elders towards, you know, my generation of like, you know, you're not learning the songs, you're not learning the ceremonies, you don't care about it. It's not that we don't care. It's just like, how do we relate this to our lives and like make it relevant? And that latter part about making it relevant is something that we, you know, in the world that we live in, we have to figure out kind of on our own. And, um, you know, so what I talk about now with the folks that kind of get mad, it's like, well, you know, like, yeah, I did these things. I skied these peaks and like, I'm much more closer and connected with who I am and where I come from and our ceremonial traditions as a result. And I think it's, if I hadn't have done this, that wouldn't have happened. So I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think the results speak for themselves. We're reframing this conversation around these sacred peaks in a different way that allows non-native people to get an insight and kind of a, an understanding about what these places mean and it's through a shared medium so that's where i really see our our opportunity and the others just bringing along people like forrest and brody and you know people that have lived very different lives and like had very different cultural experiences and then allowing them just to like join us in this and kind of wear the same cloak that we're all wearing when we're out there and and I've seen just how that's been transformative for their lives. I think what I've gotten from it and going through that journey is also having a lot of empathy and respect for everyone. You know, we all come from our own cultural viewpoints and vantage points about our relationship to place and the mountains and the environment. But I, what I'm seeing is that the folks that I'm spending time with who basically have dedicated their lives to this sport and being out there may have come from that sort of vantage point that I just didn't jive with me, but are kind of, we're like, we're kind of converging more on 
sort of that question about who we are and what these places mean to us. And I think that's been kind of a big learning for me is just like everyone starts somewhere and it's just kind of like, how do we form and shape that journey to like, for me at the end of the day, what I care about is I want people to care about these mountains. I want them to take care of them. And, you know, if they come from a different sort of philosophical tradition than myself, but we kind of end up at the same point of mutual respect for these places, then, you know, I think that's kind of where I, I, I think in myself, I've seen that learning of being more tolerant of that. Thank you, Lynn, Connor, and Aaron for sharing your story. You can follow their latest projects on Instagram at Natives Outdoors. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or story lead, please give us a shout. This is how we do it, right? Together. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Jason Shaw, Kevin McLeod, Fitzka Hall, and Cordelia Zars. Kai Engel, Amy Stosenbach, Ken Christensen, Cloud9, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and edited by Becca Cahal. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. And I'm Fitz Call. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.